Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The podcast will start after this quick message from our sponsor. A message from Barilla Foundation. How can we tackle the current food paradoxes towards more sustainable food systems? Hashtag Food Sustainability Index shows us the way. Join Vice Chairman Paola Barilla, the EU Commissioner Phil Hogan, musician Bob Geldof for the International Forum on Food and Nutrition on June 6. Sign up at www.barillacfn.com. Hey everyone, it's EU Confidential Time. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week's feature interview is with Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland. She's a hero to many, but also on the dartboards of others. Before that, let's recap the week. The rich world gathered in Paris this week for the OECD's annual forum and ministerial meeting. No topic was off the table, and Emmanuel Macron was there. He seems to be everywhere these days. But some wondered if it was just privileged people talking to themselves again. Back in Brussels, the European Commission tried to work us into a lather with a drip feed of detailed budget announcements. The Commission finally told us the details of that long-term budget they'd outlined on May 2. But it made many people wonder why they couldn't have simply gotten everything ready at the same time, given they had years to plan the announcements. On other fronts, I'm glad this podcast is coming out on Thursday, it means we can avoid the yo-yo emotions around President Trump's latest trade announcement. On the other big drama of the week, Italy, it's hard to know where to start. Italy's, and by extension, Europe's week, doesn't look any neater in the rearview mirror. The mystique around a new generation of leaders in their 30s may, however, be starting to lift after this week's political theatre left Italy no closer to stable government, but a lot closer to a debt crisis. Questions that leads us to ask. Do elections even matter anymore if unelected heads of state and markets decide who governs and what policies they implement? On the other hand, where's the democracy in a secret plan to fundamentally alter a country's economic foundations? And then there's the poor EU. Commissioner Gunter Erdinger was inelegant with his words once again, but he did at least make the point that Italy's future affects and is affected by more than a simple majority of Italian voters. A joint currency carries with it joint responsibilities, and Italy has sometimes failed to uphold those. Now it's time to hear from Nicola Sturgeon.
So you've just come from meeting with Michel Barnier. Uh, tell us, was the focus of that meeting a softer Brexit, what we do about the customs union issue? The customs union featured, as you would imagine, quite prominently in our discussions. I should say Michel Barnier has always shown an openness to hearing the Scottish government's view of these matters. It was an opportunity, therefore, for me to outline the Scottish government's view. We wish we weren't leaving the EU, but if we are, we think we should remain in the customs union and the single market. So that was an opportunity to reiterate that position. Time is running out. The UK really has to get its act together quickly. It has to be very clear about what it is seeking to achieve and in the process how it's going to resolve the issues that arise in Northern Ireland. And that if it was to take a position of remaining in a customs union and the single market, then many of the difficulties that are currently causing so many barriers in the negotiations would suddenly not be as difficult anymore. So I think the next few weeks are going to be pretty critical in the lead up to the June council meeting. And is it a June showdown that we're headed for? uh, Well, that's not for me to say. My view, uh, for what it's worth, is if we don't see significant progress on some of these withdrawal issues in June, then very quickly we're going to be in the run-up to October, which is the last point at which the withdrawal agreement can be reached. And if we're still trying to reach a conclusion on the withdrawal agreement as we approach October, then you know, things are not looking particularly positive. So from my perspective, there is a real merit in trying to see as much progress as possible in June. There are likely votes in the House of Commons around customs issues in June as well. So for all of these reasons, I think we could be entering a very critical phase over the next few weeks. Um, To cut to the chase, reality at some point has to bite for the UK. Currently, the government is trying to reconcile a whole plethora of irreconcilable issues. At some point, it has to choose. Now, the SNP, possibly more than the Scottish government per se, might have a key role enforcing the UK government into those choices. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking in terms of some crucial Commons votes Mm -hmm. that might come up in the next few weeks. Is it time for you to attempt to bring down the government over this? Um, Look, it's a Tory government. I would always want to see a Tory government uh, not be in office. But, you know, I think to focus on the issue at hand, the SNP and the House of Commons, if there are votes at any point on the customs union or the single market, we will be voting to remain in both. So our position is very clear cut. If Labour is united on the customs union, I think there is a real prospect of there being a House of Commons majority for that. And on that point, are you disappointed in Comrade Corbyn? He doesn't seem to show a lot of solidarity with Scotland over Brexit. Um, He doesn't show a lot of solidarity with his own supporters or own MPs or those whose interests he's uh, meant to represent on Brexit. You know, Brexit presents a real danger to jobs, to living standards, to investment, to all of the things that you would have thought a Labour leader would be standing up and being counted on. You know, I don't know Jeremy's real position on Brexit. All of the suspicions are that he was in favour of Brexit, but his position is out of step with his own parliamentary group. It's out of step massively with his own members and supporters across the country. And I think increasingly it's out of step with the population of the UK generally. Mm -hmm. Now, to bring it back to Brussels for a moment, if you allow me, I would offer that there's an almost limitless supply of goodwill for Scotland in Brussels. 
However, and there's a but here, the EU is a fairly remorseless legal machine. Mm. And I think there's also a lot of doubt that Brussels is willing to sacrifice something for Scotland in this process. So in a way, you might be Brexit's orphan. And I was wondering, <laughs> did Michelle Barnier... Uh, <laughs> well, it is, Scotland will be nobody's orphan, I can assure you. But um, I don't think it is... You know, saying anything that I've not said before when I say that Scotland has found itself in a very, very difficult position over Brexit. We didn't vote for it. You know, 62% of Scots voted to remain in the EU. We have accepted, and I have said this from day one, that the negotiation is between the EU27 and the UK. It's, there's not a parallel negotiation with Scotland, however unfortunate that might feel at times. But we have distinct interests we also have interests that are shared by many other uh, parts of the UK. So we have been assiduous all along in trying to make sure that Scotland's interests are understood. And any time I'm in Brussels, whether it's meeting with Michelle Barney or others, I do get a strong sense that our position is understood. There is massive sympathy. And, you know, while, yeah, there's not a separate negotiation with Scotland, there is an understanding that the right solution for the UK is good for Scotland. So I, I do think that is understood. Is it time for him to make a visit to Scotland? It's all he'd, in vogue to come to Ireland now. Uh, he'd, he'd be very welcome. Um, he knows he's, he's very welcome. Look, he's, he's got a lot on his plate. I appreciate that. These negotiations, even if they were progressing well, and they're not, in my view, but if, even if they were progressing well and smoothly, these are complex negotiations. So he's got a lot on his plate. I think it's good that as a lot of attention being paid to resolving the Irish issues because the consequences of not resolving those issues are consequences that none of us want to see. That said, I, you know, again, to be frank, I, I have to say as First Minister of Scotland, an outcome that gives Northern Ireland a preferential relationship with the single market raises real issues for Scotland because clearly there would be a competitive <laughs> disadvantage there, which is why we need to continually make the point that it's in Scotland's interest to remain within the single market as well. And is it frustrating to watch Arlene Foster suck up all of the spare time, attention, sometimes money that, that London has to offer on this issue? Well, I, I think it has reached a, and this is not a personal comment about Arlene or anybody else for that matter, it's just a, a reflection on the state of UK politics when we have a UK government that is kind of held to ransom by the DUP and I don't think that is healthy for many different aspects of politics in the UK, not least Brexit because some of the issues perhaps would be more easily soluble if that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. And it was quite a geeky week in general last week. We'll, we'll get onto the Sustainable Growth Commission in, in a few minutes. But one of the other very wonky things that came out was Sir Ivan Rogers delivering his speech yeah. on Brexit. And he essentially said that, you know, almost everyone in the process is a fantasist. Do you want to lay out the case of why you're not a fantasist or, or categorise maybe the Whitehall machine as well, another one of the fantasies? Firstly... I thought Ivan Rogers' speech was was excellent, actually. I thought it was very cogent, very clear, very compelling. I guess the, the frustrating things about it are that almost two years on from the referendum, these things are still having to be said to a UK audience. He made the speech in Scotland last week. And secondly, that it's still not as understood as it needs to be. 
and, and what I'm about to say here is not necessarily the statement of opinion or how I might like the world to be. It's just a statement of fact. The EU has been pretty clear from day one. There can't be a pick and mix approach. After Brexit, the UK is a third country and it will be dealt with as a third country and certain things follow. You can't be in the club and ignore all of the founding rules of the club. And I don't think there's ever been a point from the EU side where that's not been made clear. But there has been, on the part of some people, the, the hard breaks, the tears, a sort of willful refusal to accept that um, because they you know, still think that they can just peddle all the, the myths that they peddled during the referendum campaign. And it goes back to the point earlier on. You know, Two years ago, fine, you could possibly be a fantasist and have the, the moment of truth appearing to be quite far down the road. The moment of truth is now staring people in the face. And, you know, sooner rather than later, that moment of truth has to force a choice on the part of the UK government. And my view is it's better that that is sooner rather than later. Um, because the later it becomes, the more risk there is of a no-deal scenario. And that is in nobody's interest. And, you know, People should understand there is no preparedness for that in the UK. For all of the fighting talk and the we'll walk away with no deal, the UK government is not preparing for that option. And, and one of the, the aspects of Ivan's speech last week was setting out very clearly some of the things it would have to be doing right now if it was preparing for a no deal. And none of these things are being done. Mm -hmm. The government's position is unsustainable. And I don't think that we should, anybody who is in favour of this at home should be giving up on the single market customs union options because I do think when that crisis moment arises then there is reason to be hopeful that that is something that can be achieved. And will that crisis moment have to come via political pressure from Brussels, that clock ticking, or is it something that you can do with technical amendments to bills in, the, in Westminster? There's yeah, I mean, there'll be votes that come in the context of the withdrawal bill. There's a trade bill will have to come. So there's there's votes in the House of Commons. The clock doesn't need any pressure from anybody. It ticks regardless of who's... So the, the passage of time is going to, I think, become increasingly the point of pressure. So from my perspective, it's a case of trying to apply as much pressure and encourage as, as much pressure as possible to be applied. Mm -hmm. Now, on the withdrawal bill, we touched earlier, you mentioned that some politicians would love to wind back devolution or poke at Scotland and other administrations mm -hmm. through the wide powers that they would be granted under the withdrawal bill. So I don't know whether that's uh, Scottish whiskey or other issues are being touched, but how do you see that unfolding? What can you do to make sure that Scotland isn't being messed with in that process? Well, I mean, the withdrawal bill issues often seem quite technical, but they're very, very real. I mean, my apologies if I'm telling everybody in this audience what they already know, but some of the EU competencies like agriculture and food standards, environmental protections, under the current law that established the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Parliament, these are competencies that lie with the devolved parliaments. And if nothing happened when the UK leaves the European Union, all of those competencies would return to the devolved parliaments. What the United Kingdom government is trying to do is insert a sort of block on that so that when these competencies are no longer held in Brussels, they revert to Westminster. And Westminster holds them for a period of up to seven years with different sunset clauses applying. And 
effectively can exercise those powers. There's all sorts of warm words around it, but can effectively exercise those powers without the consent of the devolved administrations. Now, you know, it doesn't take people very long to start to understand why that matters, because if the UK is in the midst of trade negotiations, then you know, whether it's protected characteristics around Scotch whisky or our food products, whether it's debates with the United States about the lowering of environmental protections, for example, or food standards, then suddenly we find ourselves in the position of being powerless to stop things that would be really damaging to Scotland. And, you know, that's only some of the issues. You go further from that, you know, employment rights, consumer rights, these things all suddenly potentially are up for grabs. And the Scottish Parliament, who should hold these powers, is powerless to stop them. So that's why it really matters. There are things that we've always conceded post-Brexit would require UK-wide frameworks to ease trade in all directions. We're not arguing with that. The question is, are those frameworks negotiated by consent or are they imposed by Westminster? And uh, we want the former and they want the latter. So on independence, the question that jumps out at me Mm. as someone sitting here, not right in the thick of it in Scotland is that you run the risk of falling between two chairs, that people overall do dislike Brexit in Scotland, but they maybe don't hate it enough to shift into the pro-independence camp. What's your plan to to make sure you don't fall between those two chairs? Well, I mean, I think the first point to make about the independence case is that it is much bigger than Brexit. So, you know, in my view, the independence case is, is strong regardless of Brexit. Brexit accentuates aspects of the independence case particularly the democratic aspect of that. You know, let's just remember for a second that Scotland, having been told in the independence referendum that if we voted for independence, we would be thrown out of the European Union, we're now finding ourselves facing the exit door of the European Union when we didn't vote for that. Arguably, people could say that some people would have voted against independence to protect their EU membership, then they voted against Brexit to protect their EU membership, and yet we're facing being taken out anyway. That's not democracy by any stretch of the imagination. So aspects of the case for independence have been strengthened. The economic case is important for Scotland, and this was a point made by the Yes campaign in 2014. It's important for Scotland to trade freely across the UK. It's vital for the rest of the UK to trade freely with Scotland. But it's really important for Scotland also to continue to trade within the single market. The single market is eight times the size of the UK market. So we shouldn't be in a position where we're having to choose one or the other. It is absolutely legitimate and perfectly reasonable for us to say we want to do both. So many aspects of the independence case have been strengthened by Brexit. On the other side, inevitably, though, Brexit creates a lot of uncertainty for people. It's not yet, for all the reasons we've been talking about, possible for people to look ahead to the post-Brexit landscape and see exactly what the UK-EU relationship is going to be. So I think many people in Scotland would say, whether they're for or against independence, well, OK, let's get a bit of clarity about that first before we are in the position of making a choice over independence. Mm -hmm. And is that the thinking behind the Sustainable Growth Commission that you want to avoid the mistake that I think most people would agree the Brexiteers made in not coming up with enough of a plan about what Brexit would look like if it were achieved? In a sense, are you trying to paint that picture to reassure people to build the case? Well, there is 
we, in the run-up to 2014, I think whether people voted for or against independence, even some of our sternest critics, we as in the Yes campaign, would accept that we put forward a fairly detailed prospectus in 2014. Now, people might have disagreed with large parts of that prospectus, but we published a what 800-page document, which is rather more detailed than a slogan on the side of a bus, which is pretty much all the Brexiteers managed to do in 2016. So independence and the case for that has always been backed by a really substantive prospectus. And nearly four years on from that, inevitably, whether there's uh, whatever the timing of a second independence referendum, there is clearly a debate in Scotland about what future arrangements are best for us. And it's important that that debate is really well informed, which is why the Growth Commission was set up and it published its report last week. It's a set of recommendations at the moment. It was an SNP commissioned report. It will now go into a process of deliberation and decision within the SNP. But, you know, I, after the Brexit vote, you know, I used to get people saying to me, not infrequently, that, oh, well, if there's another independence referendum, you should just try and do the same as they did in the Brexit vote, just, you know, have big slogans and no detail and, and get people to vote on emotion. A, I don't think people in Scotland would buy that. And secondly, as we're now finding out with Brexit, it's a fundamentally dishonest way to ask people to make a decision and the chickens quickly come home to roost. It should be positive it should be aspirational. It should be focused on how we maximise our potential as a country. And there'll be different views on that. But the debate in the last couple of years since the Brexit vote has been so depressing in that all it's been about, and much of our discussion today around the customs union and the single market, it's all about just limiting the damage of something that we didn't vote for. And you know, much, much better to actually have a debate about how do we maximise the vast potential we've got as a country and hopefully that's the opportunity we'll have over the next period. I wonder, is there merit to, uh, well, slightly hypothetical here, but in not wanting to have uh, exiting the, the customs union imposed mm -hmm. on Scotland while at the same time arguing that Scotland should be independent, is there something to people in London thinking, well, why should we listen to Nicola Sturgeon on that? If she wants to force us into a customs union and then leave the UK anyway, isn't that Scotland imposing its will well, on everyone? I guess I'd make a, a couple of quick points to that. The, the, one of the problems for the UK government right now, in my view, and it's, it's my opinion, is that they're not really listening to anybody apart from the mad Brexiteers. And for the avoidance of doubt, I am talking about people like Boris Johnson, just in case people thought I wasn't naming names. Uh, Name some more. Uh, well, <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg, Michael Gove, you know, the, I think you know, we know who we're talking about here. So that's the problem that at the moment, even although I don't think these people speak for a majority in terms of their support for a hard Brexit of the country, they're the ones that are being listened to. The second point is staying in the customs union is not, it is in Scotland's interests. But it's not just in Scotland's interests. It's, in my very, very strong view, it's in the interests of the whole of the UK to stay in the customs union. So it would be cutting off their nose to spite their face if they turned their back on that. And I'm not suggesting this is the only reason they're turning their back on it if it was just because it would be doing what I or the Scottish government was arguing for. And then thirdly, you know, if you cast your mind back to the independence referendum in 2014, what is the EU? It's a... It's an alliance of independent countries. The Yes campaign was arguing for Scotland to be an independent country that was in the European Union 
in the single market, in the customs union. So our view has been pretty consistent all along, perhaps uh, differently to uh, some others uh, in other parts of the world. We are a, a nationalist movement, to use that term, that is always very internationalist in our outlook. And so that view has been consistent. Um, but the, the key an- point of the answer to your question is we're arguing for something here that I think is in the interests of the whole of the UK, not just of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that we often do in these interviews is we have a quick fire round of questions. Oh, I hate quick fire no, questions. It's fun. Hate them. We get to know Nicola, the real Nicola. Um, <laughs> where's, my, where's my team? You didn't tell me about the quick fire <laughs> round of questions. I think you do great. Um, and it, it was your, the, the internationalist nationalist point that reminded me we should do it. Mm-hmm. Because the first question I wanted to ask is, is Catalonia independent? Uh, that's not a quick fire. You <laughs> cannot yes say no. that is quick fire. Are, are we sticking with their referendum results or are we uh, you can, telling you, them no, the way? Look, I'm sorry, I refuse to accept that that is a genuine quick fire because you can't. <laughs> People of Catalonia voted and the majority who voted, voted for independence. Uh, Clearly it's not recognised by Spain. We're in a standoff position and what I've said and will say again is that we need to see, I think, from Spain a move towards dialogue that can resolve that position. It's not for me to say whether Catalonia should be independent or not, but surely it's for the people of Catalonia to be able to decide that and we need to get to a position where they are able to express their own views on that question. That's, this uh, is I'll, unlike I'll, any quickfire round that I've ever taken part in before. Okay, I'll move to a genuinely quickfire question now. What's the best book you've read recently? Well, the best book I've... I'm actually right now reading, just because he died last week, I'm reading uh, The Plot Against America by uh, Philip Roth, which uh, is rather eerily prescient in terms of what's currently happening. But... Um, but other than that, I'm, I'm an avid reader, so I, I read all the time, basically, and fiction is my, my thing rather than non-fiction. Fiction. Very good. Uh, who's your favourite Tory? <laughs> can be a very quick-fire question. <laughs> Pass. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm allowed certain passes. Yeah, OK. Uh, do you, uh, on a scale of one to ten, what's your level of sympathy for Theresa May? Uh, on a personal level, I, I think any leader who can <laughs> empathise with the challenges and the difficulties that other leaders face is there's something a bit odd about them. So on a personal level, she's got a very, very difficult uh, set of like issues a, a seven, to deal with. So on a, per- on a political level, zero. Um, <laughs> on a personal level, it's probably more mid-table uh, than that. But, you know, that's tempered, I guess, by the fact, and all of us in politics, myself included, we have to bear the consequences of our own decisions. And some of her difficulties have been caused by the fact she triggered Article 50 when she didn't have to and set a clock ticking when she didn't have to do that. And then she called a general election when she didn't have to do it, lost a majority in the process and compounded the, the difficulties. So, you know, I think she's got, to, as all of us do, I say, has to bear the responsibility for some of the mess she now finds herself in. Now, the last one, I promise. What's the last thing you said to Alex Salmond? Uh, I can't remember. And the last time I spoke to him was probably a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, But what I last said to him, I can't remember. Okay. Um, I was probably... Um, he's a Hearts fan and my, my husband's a Hibs fan, so I was, I was probably slagging him off about yeah. a Hearts result yeah, or something. I can imagine. <laughs> If you believe that, you'll believe anything. 
uh, maybe uh, it's kind of Brexit related, um, but it's I also thought you said it was the last one. Well, this, this is not quick fire now. Oh, right, okay. You can go back into go back into to long winded oh, right, okay. uh, answers if you wish. It's around uh, keeping the pound. So I was yeah. reading the the I, commission I report. The quick fire round. <laughs> Uh, so one of the ideas floated in the report is that Scotland could keep the pound mm. for up to, to 10 years after independence. I'm just wondering, how would that work in your mind? Would, wouldn't that make you a bit more like Montenegro, Kosovo, Panama, where you've, you've, you've got a currency, no one's stopping you from yeah. having it, but you don't really have a say in it? Firstly, and the obvious point, it's not intended to dodge your question because I'm about to, to answer your question, is the, the report that was published on Friday is a set of recommendations. The SNP has to consider them and deliberate and you know, come to a view. In the last referendum, we proposed a currency union, which you know, the governor of the Bank of England as recently as last week said would have been perfectly economically credible. But it gave our opponents a political veto. If Scotland was to use the pound out with a currency union, even for a, a transitionary period, I don't think it puts us in the same position as Panama, for example, because you know the term sterlingisation that's often used is when a country chooses to use a currency that's not its own. The pound is Scotland's currency right now. How do you feel about the euro? Because maybe that's where some of these issues all join, because it, you would... I mean, I'm imagining that the EU would say, OK, the price for membership of an independent Scotland is you have to sign up to the I'm not, euro. I'm not going to sort of transport myself forward into, you know, EU negotiations. I think we focus on the, the negotiation that is currently underway with the EU. It's not my party's position to have Scotland go into the, the euro and I don't envisage that changing. Self-evidently, it's not a requirement of EU membership in now, practice. post-Brexit it might be. Well, as I say, I'm, you know, let's... There is an irony here to, you know, having gone through an independence referendum campaign where Scotland was told we'd get chucked out if we voted yes, to now being told we'd be dragged in. And, you know, those who argued for a no vote uh, used to say, don't vote for independence because you'll get chucked out. Now, this, the very same people say, don't vote for independence now because it'll be a fast track back into the EU and all the nasty things that come with EU membership. So let's take these things in course. Self-evidently, there are you know many EU member states that do not use the euro. In terms of the requirements for euro membership, you know, it's quite clear countries cannot be forced into the euro against their will. There's your out, because you would have work to do on the deficit. You wouldn't as it stands, meet we, that we, we wouldn't We wouldn't meet the criteria, you know, in terms of what the criteria say around ERM membership or other aspects of that. So I think in a whole host of ways, I think anybody, certainly domestically, who tries to scaremonger around independence in terms of the euro, which is the exact opposite of what they tried to do the last time, really lacks credibility. For Scotland, it's important to debate these things based on what works best for our economic circumstances and our economic needs, and that's what we will seek to do. And how is it going amidst all of the, the wider UK rhetoric that seems to be fairly harshly against immigration at the moment. You're just yeah. saying Scotland needs to be welcoming. You, know, you don't exactly have the room to have your own highly skilled, targeted migration programme. Yeah. But what, what can you do within the current framework to welcome people into Scotland? And, and what additionally would you like to do to really boost the population and attract that talent if you, you get the, the opportunity? Well, right now, Scotland has no autonomy when it comes to who is allowed to come into 
the UK and, and by extension Scotland. That's something I hope will change, even short of Scotland being independent. And interestingly, I think one of the things that has shifted in the UK debate about immigration in the last couple of years is that it's now not just Scotland you will hear arguing for greater flexibility on immigration. You'll hear that same plea made by people in London or you know other regions of England because increasingly there's a feeling that a one-size-fits-all immigration approach doesn't suit the UK and there are plenty of examples in other federal countries where flexibility mm-hmm. on immigration is possible. Right now we try to be as positive and as encouraging and as welcoming in the immediate aftermath of the EU referendum. One of the most important things for me was to say directly to EU nationals living in Scotland that they were welcome because there was immediately a feeling across the UK that that was not the case. We've made some commitments around continuing to pay at university tuition fees of EU students studying in Scotland. We've also made a commitment that when the UK finally decides what arrangements will be in place for EU nationals in the future. If there are fees there for residents, we will you know, look to meet those fees for, pe- for people in the public sector because our health service, for example, is so dependent on making sure we continue to attract people. Longer term, you know, Scotland's, when I was first in Parliament our, what, 20 years ago, our working age population was in decline. It's now increasing almost entirely because of inward EU migration. So if that is choked off to Scotland over the next 25 years, there is a real risk that our population starts to decline again and nobody wants to see that. Um, I hate lots and lots of things about Brexit, but the thing I hate most is that it may have given any suggestion to people who've chosen to make the UK and in our case Scotland their home, any suggestion that they're not welcome. Um, I, I hate the idea of that. So every opportunity I get, I try to say People, I take the view that people come to live in your country, do you? They pay you a compliment if they want to come and make your country their home and contribute something. EU nationals are net contributors to our economy and to our public finances. So we should take every opportunity to underline that they're welcome and we want them to stay. Nicola Sturgeon, thank you very much for joining us here at Politico. Coming up next, after a message from our sponsor, the podcast panel. A message from Barilla Foundation. There are questions about food which seem to be about a distant future, but they are not. Tackling the complexity of such challenges now is the only way to ensure a future for the planet and for people. How can we feed a growing global population with more sustainable agricultural practices? How can we recast the relationship between food systems and migration to guide policy priorities in the EU agenda? Why is food essential for the Sustainable Development Goals? In an effort to address these issues, the BCFN Foundation, in partnership with the Center for European Policy Studies, will host the International Forum on Food and Nutrition in Brussels, a global platform to bring together diverse stakeholders, policymakers, youth, and civil society organizations, and drive dramatic unified change across all aspects of hashtag food sustainability. The forum will take place for the first time at the Square, Brussels, on June 6, 2018. Join our Vice Chairman Paola Barilla, EU Commissioner Phil Hogan, musician Bob Geldof, and other charismatic speakers on June 6 at the Square in Brussels. Sign up now at www.barillacfn.com. And now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust. Hi, Lena. 
Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Hello, Ryan. It is great to be talking to you. We had a series of technical difficulties, but we will never let that stop us uh, bringing the panel to everybody. Uh, I, I almost don't even know where to start. I say that a lot, but if you thought that Kim Kardashian ruling the policy discussions at the White House was weird, if you thought Roseanne blaming her racism on a sleeping tablet was weird, well, we can top you in Europe with a Ukrainian journalist who was involved in faking his own death in order to have arrested a series of Russian people said to have taken out a contract on his life. His wife was said to have found him lying on the floor in front of his apartment with bullets in him, and actually no one even told her that that was uh, the story that she'd been needing to stick to because that didn't happen at all. Lena, you seem to know a lot about this case. Tell us a little <laughs> bit more about what you think happened, because I think we're all pretty confused. Apparently, the gentleman fled last year to Ukraine. And, and this is Arkady Babchenko. Yeah, and um, he was uh, receiving lots of uh, threats. So basically on the story, the Russians have been looking for someone to terminate the life of, of this journalist, and they paid somebody. And this gentleman told the Ukrainians authorities that and they made it as if like a trap in order to track the Russians are behind this assassination. So if the man who was alleged to have been paid to kill Arkady Babchenko self-identified to the Ukrainian police, why would you need to go through with the whole operation? Why wouldn't you just arrest him? I think it was just to know more people, to, to know the whole chain, to get more proof, I think. This is what I have been reading. But yet again, I think it's a story, it's more glory and shining for the media to pick it up, you know. Everyone now is talking about it, so wow, look what we have done. And unfortunately, where do we stand with fake news? So what do we believe and we don't believe now? What should we? If a journalism is reaching to that extent, it's really difficult. Exactly. If we, that, uh, if we go back to ground zero of fake news, I think the major event that a lot of people will refer to is misinformation and disinformation around the shooting of the Malaysian airline plane over Ukraine, which investigators have now said definitively did come from Russian actors and Russian weapons. So when you have Ukraine as ground zero for misinformation and fake news, and when you have the Ukrainian judicial system uh, constantly under question as one of the problems stopping Ukraine from getting closer or getting into the EU, I, I'm just bemused about why anyone thinks this is a good idea. Yeah, I think that increasingly people look at Ukraine as kind of like a bad faith actor, which is actually not very good from a European standpoint because he was backing Ukraine all of the time and this doesn't help. It's not going to help. I don't think anybody in the media is going to now look at Ukraine and be like, oh, great, we can believe whatever the Ukrainian government tell us. That's under question now, undoubtedly, and it feeds into all of this fake news. And that's the thing is, the Russians say that things are fake news all the time. And also for this journalist, if he does actually show up dead sometime, are we going to be ever, ever be able to believe that he is he's dead? Yes, you know? he's the journalist who cried wolf now, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think that it just seems to be such a heavy-handed, clumsy yeah. way of doing something in the national press to say, you know, pointing the finger at Russia, but then really it's being pointed back at them uh, because the way they've done it is is a bit silly, a bit heavy-handed, and, uh, yeah, a bit shambolic. Yeah, actually, I would say that I already had a scepticism of how the Russian state operates, 
I'm not any more skeptical now as a result of this operation, <laughs> but I am definitively more skeptical yeah. about <laughs> Ukraine as a result of this happening. Yeah, it's just like from Russia with love question mark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's so yeah, odd. I, yeah. I can really imagine that you would need to do this in certain. Uh, police operations. I just don't see why you would need to do the whole Gone Girl sort of press conferences and drama yeah. around it. You, you kind of you do life. it and you tell people afterwards. I yeah. just like the idea. I like. I think that whoever runs the intelligence agency in in Ukraine is like a theater director. You know, like they they're like and look, ooh, and the like. I don't know the curtains look behind the door. Yeah, the, door. <laughs> the curtains drop and it's like dead and yet dead, uh, Babushenko. So yeah. Someone has a flair for drama. Well, maybe it's time to give a thumbs up. Uh, we don't have anything in Italy that we can give a thumbs up to. Uh, Alva, can you think of anything we want to give a thumbs up to? I can, Ryan. Last week I travelled home to Ireland to be there uh, when what actually I thought was going to be a much closer referendum result. It was on the abortion referendum in Ireland, so I, we've spoken about it from a few different perspectives at this stage. But yeah, I think we were all fairly shocked. We don't do exit polls for referendums in Ireland. This is the first time that they, one ever came out. Just after the polls closed, we realised that it was a, a landslide, even more of a landslide than for marriage equality. And to me, genuinely, that was a shock as someone who was involved in campaigning. We definitely thought it was going to be much closer than it was. And some of the polls actually told us some very interesting things. My favourite being that most people had already made up their minds years ago that there should be abortion available in Ireland. Mm. So what were we all doing all of those years, that, you know, the many years that we were campaigning? I don't know. I mean, I went back with a lot of people who were home to vote. Um, I think people found that very moving. When I got back to Dublin Airport, there was a waiting, welcoming crew there. And they say that maybe up to 30,000 people flew back to Ireland to vote. And many of them would have been flying in from Brussels, from places in, in the European Union. Which is moving. But we should point out how crazy that system is. I don't mean mentally ill crazy. I just mean as in it's a bad system that you can't vote in your embassy. I couldn't agree more. We obviously do have a, a huge amount of people who have left Ireland. It would be difficult, I think, to run something like that. However, the thing is, the cutoff point, which I also don't agree with, is 18 months. It's the most restrictive. How many times do I say that about Irish laws? A lot. It's one of the most restrictive voting laws for people abroad. That's a new referendum. Yes, exactly. Well, next year there, was, there is going to be a referendum, but we would only get access to vote in presidential elections. But mm. I actually don't want to vote in those. I would only like to vote in referendums, actually, because mm. they affect my rights as an Irish citizen. This in particular, I mean, we've had two. So marriage equality, I'm gay. That was one that I really felt that I should have the right to vote in. And also I'm a woman. And at some point I would like to go home and be able to rely, if I were ever pregnant, on our maternity um, care, which I couldn't before now. So, yeah, I think it was a huge win for modern progressive Ireland, but it showed that politicians, everybody, was they're so far behind on what people want. Mm. People had already decided that this is what they want years ago, before the campaign even started. And still, even in the Dáil, a lot of people voted against having a referendum. It's very inspiring, Alva. I think you should be extremely proud, and Irish people should be, women especially, be super proud because uh, so many countries are still suffering. Um, I was in Latin America a few weeks ago, and there are women that go on boats and they die because they are not allowed to have an abortion. The percentages in certain countries are so high. So this is a very uh, kind of, of hope for women. So no, certainly a thumbs up, and I, I hope more countries can join the Irish model. 
many people feel that an issue like this goes to the core of their identity, their religious identity, I think, is often the case. And so some people might argue that, well, okay, we accept the result, but it's not something we should somehow be celebrating. Alva, what's your take on that? Because I'm skeptical of that view, but I, I want to listen to all sides of a debate. What do you think is a, an appropriate way to react to the news? I definitely had this conversation already over the weekend and I do think it's something to celebrate but I honestly if you had been in Ireland it was more tears than smiles people were so relieved they were so moved by the stories that women had told they really shouldn't have had to tell their stories but I think one of the moments when I cried a lot was a couple who had been very much at the forefront of the campaign who had told their story about travelling to England when they'd gotten the worst news of their lives they said now this thing that never should have been secret can go back to being private and I think that's why people celebrated they celebrated that no one ever would have had to do that ever again and that is something to celebrate I think it's something that we should have celebrated on Saturday I think for some people it could be a difficult issue but there's just no denying that the 8th caused an enormous amount of harm to people and on that morning when I heard that I was like that's what I'm celebrating I'm celebrating us having access to the care that many other Europeans have access to that we should have had access to the whole time and also I was celebrating the victory of a very proud feminist campaign. A lot of people will point to Leo Varadkar or Simon Harris, our Minister for Health, as people who push this over the line. But this is a campaign run by women, almost exclusively, and women telling their stories, some men as well telling their stories. But it was a proudly feminist campaign and it won. And how often do we get to celebrate something like that? I'm not celebrating abortion. I'm celebrating proper health care for people in difficult circumstances. And I wonder, are there any analogies or lessons for other Europeans and other European countries involved in difficult human rights issues. And my point here is that Irish people solved this problem. It took a very long time, but it wasn't as a result of someone in Brussels telling them that this needed to change, even though there are very strong legal arguments in cases which suggest that Irish citizens' European human rights were being infringed because of this Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution. And so I'm thinking, obviously, of course, different situations, but similar human rights questions, uh, Poland, Hungary, countries like that. I think that we had been making, because as you know, I'm an Irish human rights person. I'd been making arguments around the human rights treaties for years, but it wasn't that that pushed it over. It was really people's stories, people's lived experience of this affecting their lives and then them coming out. And the thing was, before people didn't talk about this, people didn't talk about how they had an abortion. It was very much something that was shameful. But now that has totally changed. And I think that is basically the the main thing that I can take from the campaign. People's stories make a difference. Human rights are not abstract. But when we say the word, I think that people just completely blinker and, and don't think about it. We need to talk to people about how human rights apply in their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And that is what people's stories did. And it was extremely powerful. And that's what I think, in the end, pushed people to go out and vote for something that they probably didn't feel comfortable voting for. And in the opposite way as well, the pro-life stance, they also used human rights, you know, the human rights of the unborn. But then when you actually went into it, it just went to show that our laws were just way too restrictive. It didn't allow for the complexities of life. Mm-hmm. As I said, it's very inspiring. And But now the big responsibility on the Irish women and this movement is to spread it around Europe and to talk to more other organisations. 
It's a case study of success, and uh, so there's a lot of work ahead, and it's not done yet. And it will be more interesting to see the outcomes, when it's going to be law, when it's applied, when we celebrate the successes of women being in their own countries and being able to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that I would be remiss not to mention is that abortion is still illegal in Northern Ireland. So hopefully this will make it easier. And already Leo Varadkar has said, you know, this is probably going to be a service that's open to Northern Irish women. But now Theresa May is really under pressure to bring this in. People are asking for a referendum there. Like, they don't need a referendum. All they need, you know, is the, the, the laws to apply. Apparently it's a devolved issue. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, they need to be next. And I, we've already kind of, the, the Brussels repeal group that I'm part of, that's the next thing on our sites. Uh, so not just European women, Irish women, still Irish women will have to travel to get abortions. And that brings us almost full circle. We had Nicola Sturgeon at the beginning of the podcast making the point that there are quite a few internal contradictions in the UK government's approach to Brexit. And there are certainly parallels to this issue. It's uh, (laughs) Arlene Foster in Northern Ireland is very clear there shouldn't be divergence between the UK and Northern Ireland on essentially every single policy issue except this one. And, you know, I'm not here to make judgments about Arlene Foster, but it's hard not to look at that and, and see the contradictions that will at some point come to a head. I thought it was funny because someone said basically the only person who has choice in Northern Ireland is Arlene Foster. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alva. Thank you, Lena. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. But thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to rate, review or subscribe to the podcast wherever you found it. And if you haven't yet officially joined our community, sign up at politico.eu forward slash registration. So it just comes to you and you get invites to any podcast related events. Obviously, it's a team effort. We couldn't do it without Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin. Thank you, everyone. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 